1100 foot ounce here. Steve's got an awesome, awesome time for you guys as you guys dive into the Word. Amen. Seth, thank you. It's always great when prophecy breaks forth, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, it's just right before the New Testament begins. These next two weeks are going to be kind of really dealing with the heart of men. Um, next week is Father's Day, and I just really wanted to speak specifically to men, but this message obviously would be for everyone, but uh, uh, really the leaders of our homes, um, it really, the fuck stops there, and I want us to uh, really grab onto that, learning the heart of the Father, and uh, we're going to learn some things today, I hope, all of us, uh, Malachi chapter 4, verse 6 is where we're going to springboard. At the very end here, and maybe you've heard this before, and I believe this uh, from a prophetic standpoint for our nation to turn is really important for this. He said, he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Another translation says, I will turn the hearts of the fathers to their, to their children, and the hearts of the children to their father. How many know we've got a fatherless generation in our midst in America, and we try to fix our problems and fix this and fix that. And uh, our nation, I believe that oh, if you want to talk about a broad rush of fixing things, is men stepping up in their homes and waking up and arising and turning the TV off and realizing that sports isn't the end for the life. Amen. Can I get an amen there? Amen. <clears throat> Alvin Toffler said this, Tomorrow's illiterate will not be the man who can't read he will be the man who has not learned how to learn. And I really believe that. Like us men, we get to a place in our lives where we've kind of we've got it all figured out. You know, I, I watch men with their lawn. There's a guy that goes out the street. He actually has a do not, do not walk on the lawn sign. His lawn's perfect. And everything's perfect and figured out. And we kind of get that way in life where we don't want people to touch us and get near us. And we've got our boundaries and how we do things. How many know it? People invade your space, it gets a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? And we're all that way, we all have boundaries. Boundaries are healthy, boundaries are good, but it gets to a place where we, when we get to a place of isolation, that's a bad place. And men, when we get to a place where we've isolated ourselves, what I think is great as far as groundbreaking great experiences, we've had some really neat times as Jim's led the Bible studies and the men's Bible studies, they had some really cool times there where guys just got in a circle and prayed and cried and those kind of moments don't just happen on accident. And where we had the camping trip where we kind of hung out and we got past the uh, minutiae, if you will, the weather talk, and we just hanged and loved on each other. And, and it's a really neat thing. But I want us to know that there is things that we have got to learn. Turn to someone and say, you got some stuff to learn. And it's a positive thing. It's a good thing. But it's an understanding that if we're going to learn the heart of the Father, we're going to have to start developing those tendencies of Jesus Christ in our own life if we're going to see revival happen in our homes. How many want revival in your home today? I do. Let us learn today three things. Every man, woman, and child in here today, let us learn this. Learn to be led. Not the first point. Number two, learn that life is an adventure. 
And the third point, I think, sometimes the hardest point, is learn to win. You know, it's not hard to be a loser in life. And uh, life can be overwhelming at times, and then we begin to get overwhelmed with life, and then our mentality is that I will never have victory. I think that's a horrible, defeated mindset that we get in a church and get in our lives. We look at our little church maybe here and we say, how can we do anything great? We do great things in this ministry. Amen. And you do great things in your home with all the inconsistencies, with all the trials, with all the failures. Learn to win. And that's the hardest part for all of us. His preaching will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Learn to be led. I believe there's no finer inheritance that you can pass to your children then to teach them this, uh, Father, is to teach them to seek after God, to obey Him regardless of the consequence. If you want to pass anything down, forget about your investments for a moment. Forget about your portfolio. Forget about your vocation. I want you to think about today, are you obeying God and are you passing inheritance down your children that says, follow after God with all your heart, no matter where you're at, no matter the consequence. You know, I was thinking about the consequence of our faith. In America, there's really not much of a consequence, is there? Now, you might have people that disagree with you and fight with you at work or not like you or have a disposition towards you, but there's not a consequence. And so in life, what we have to realize in America is our convictions are so valuable they're so important because as our faith goes forth, what's happened in the church now, and kind of how we develop our faith and stuff, we kind of show people that we're just good people. Folks, I don't want to be known just as a good person. I want to be known as a person seeking after Jesus Christ. There are good Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses out there. Come on. There are good heathens out there. That pay their bills on time and arrive to work early, and they work harder than most Christians do. I want people to know that I'm in love with Jesus Christ. I want children, my children, to know that I want to seek after God with all my heart. I'm not perfect, but I want to be led by the Father. You must learn to become a spiritual man in the kingdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. We've got to become spiritual once again. You know, Ted was prophesying today, talking about just reading the Word and kind of doing those things, and we don't get past the, uh, the peripheral, we don't get into the depth and the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 kind of gives us that picture. First Corinthians 2, verse 14. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but consider them foolishness, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But, everyone say but. We have the mind of Christ. See, we can't excuse ourselves for how we're living. We can't just say, well, I didn't know this. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, every man and woman child in here today, you have the mind of Christ. Now, there's a development process. 
They're stripping away of things in our life that are not um, prosperous, they're not good for us. But realize this, that we can have the mind of Christ in all we do. You don't have to have stinking thinking. Turn someone and say, do you have stinking thinking today? You don't have to carry around the rotten attitude. You don't have to carry around the horrible disposition. You don't have to talk bad about people. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do it how the world does it. See, we think that we kind of are trudging through the world, and it's just so hard, this Christian faith, and God has given us the liberty. Whomever the sun sets free is free indeed. You are a glorious victor. And the first thing to understand today is to learn to be led where they need to carefully determine. In fact, in Ephesians 5.16 it says this. Don't act thoughtlessly. How many have acted thoughtlessly before? How many have spoke before they thought before? It says this in Ephesians 5.16 and 17. But understand what the Lord is saying. Understand what the Lord wants you to do. So it is my recommendation that if you're living thoughtlessly, if you're living a life in the flesh, if you're doing things to fulfill the desires of your flesh, you're going to have to turn on the other diet. And you're going to have to start thinking, what does the Lord want for my life? I keep walking in circles. I keep running in circles. I keep hitting walls in my life. What's going on? You're going to have to turn on the other thing, which is the desire in your heart, to carefully determine, Ephesians 5.10 says this, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. See, I think many times in our life, we want God to bless us, men. We want God to bless our families, bless our life. Man, I'm not, nothing's going on, I'm not prosperous, but we are not determining what is pleasing to God. What that tells me is there's going to be some things in our life maybe that are not pleasing to God. Can I get an amen there? Amen. Men, where do you need to determine carefully what is pleasing the Lord? What choices and what habits are you going to have to face head on and say, I need to deal with these things because it's careless and I'm not using the mind of Christ in this situation. As you make careful decisions, you are becoming more and more like Him. You are allowing God to reshape and reform your hearts and desires. I heard this once. There was a great sculptor who had sculptures prized by everyone, someone went back to the secret of his masterpiece. He said, I just chip away everything that doesn't belong there. The sculptor looked at the lump of granite or whatever and saw something that no one else saw. So here's what Christ does. He comes in and he says, he sees a beautiful masterpiece in the making. He sees an opportunity. He sees a future with you. This is what Christ sees. He doesn't see a bump. He doesn't see a loser. He doesn't see someone who's barely making it. He sees you as your future you. He sees you as that person down the road. See, we can't grasp that because all we see are problems. All we see are failures. How many of you look in the mirror and you start kind of dressing yourself down and looking things over and you, you're the worst critic of yourself, aren't you? Christ comes in and he says, I take out everything that's not supposed to be. And that sculptor also does this. As the sculptor takes and chisels those things away, he sees something that no one else can see. A.W. Tozer wrote this, When God looks at man through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, he sees what no one else can see. He sees Christ. 
Everything in that man's life that doesn't belong there, everything that is not Christ, he painstakingly begins to renew. He may take months, or he may take years to finish his masterpiece. However, he is in no hurry because of the delicate nature of his work and the ultimate result of his craftsmanship. God is not in a hurry with you. You know that? Now, I think, now I'm the kind of person, I don't know if you know me by now, but I get in a hurry. My wife can say amen. I get in a hurry at work. I want jobs to get done quicker. I want everything to be done fast. I don't want things slow. I want things fast, and I want them now. And there need people like me in this place. Exactly. He's not in a hurry with you, folks. It might take months to overcome that. It might take years to overcome it. He who began a good work in you will complete it. We're sculpting here. You know, we can put up really cheap houses really good now, can't we? You know, there's whole subdivisions. I remember when me and my wife were looking for homes, and we saw these really neat, oh, that's a new house there. There's a neat house over here. And then we kind of started looking through the neighborhood, and we're like, man, all these houses pretty much are the same. And they've all been put up like in a week or less kind of thing. And it, they're not, there's not the craftsmanship that you see. I do these homes, and what we do in windows, and I'm like, the windows are only like a couple years old, and they're already going bad. That's the kind of things that our society produces now. How do you see these old homes and you start looking at it and you see the master craftsmanship and the work and it took them years to build, but guess what? They're still standing. Realize today that as you be led and as Christ is chiseling things out, he's not doing it in anger. He's not doing it in saying, I can't believe this. He's crafting you. He's making you. And we've got to trust that God will do it. Ephesians 2.10 says this, We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do good things that He's planned for us long ago. I want you to know as you're learning to be led today that the most powerful words that I believe Jesus ever spoke, and there's a lot of powerful words, this is Steve's personal opinion, the most powerful words that Jesus ever spoke on earth were this, Come and follow me. Amen. And I will make you fishers of men. Amen. See, that call has gone out throughout all the generations since. As people have walked aisles, as people have knelt by their bedsides, and they felt the call of God, and they received Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they said, God, I want to follow you. You know today, right now, where you're at, if you're going to be a great leader, guess what you're going to have to be first? You're going to have to be a great follower. We all want to be great leaders, but we don't want to follow, do we? Because what following means is that you have to humble yourself. Of that humble, that contrite heart saying, I don't know how to do this. And many of us men, we get into a place the same way we get when we get traveling down the road of life or we're on vacation and we don't want to ask for directions. Men, start asking for directions. Amen. You will end up at the craziest gas station you've ever been at. I promise you, if you don't, start asking for directions. Start asking for directions. If you're going to be a leader, you've got to follow. And it's not just you and Jesus. How do you follow today? We don't have Jesus physically walking the streets, do we? You find people that are walking with Jesus already. You find men in your life and you say, how are they doing this? You ask them for advice. I think one of the hardest things for us to do as men being led is we don't ask for advice. 
We do things how we see fit. Jess Gibson writes this, Jesus planned to make these ordinary people into extraordinary champions. One translation of the Bible interprets Jesus' words by the twelve this way, Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me leave. Folks, I don't want to be the type of person that when I'm walking with Jesus, that I get in front of Jesus. I don't want to be in front of Jesus. I want to be just directly behind him. And by the way, being led is not giving God opinions on what he's to do. He is not your co-captain. One of the, the, the horrible statements I've ever heard is, you know, Jesus is my co-pilot. I want to burn that thing up. You are not a co-pilot. You get in the back seat, and you sit there, and you shut your lip. You are not a co-pilot. You sit down. You don't even know where you're going. As we learn to follow, then we can start to do like what Paul said and with confidence and not cockiness. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And if we want to lead the now generations coming up, and we want to lead our children, we need to be able to say with conviction, fathers and men, that we say this today, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Dad, do you want your son or daughter to be imitating you right now? Hmm. You want them imitating you. And unfortunately, we all have bad habits. And unfortunately, we do things. And I, I do crazy little things. And, and I, I don't, I'm like, oh man, those kind of little things get out in Hunter now because of me. It's my fault. And let me know the sins of the father get translated down to the kids. Not picking on Hunter. Hunter, how's the one back there? <laughs> imitate me as I imitate Christ. Number two, learn that life is an adventure. Alfred North Whitehead wrote, without an adventure, civilization is in full decay. And I think what America has gotten to because of all of our whistles and buzzers and contraptions and where we're at in life, we have lost adventure. We get everything on an app. And you can go on Google Maps now. And I was telling Anna, I'm like, we're, we're going to Zion National Park and whatever. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, we don't even need to go there. I can just tour the whole park right now. I can go right on the trail on Google Maps. I got better pictures. This is better life. It's all I got now. We don't have adventure in us anymore. Talking to Nate at the campfire, we were laughing because we are out there and he's got this manly grilling stuff. I'm like, yeah, we got to pull out all the weapons when we go camping. You can't do this stuff at home. You can't grill like that. No! Without an adventure, civilization is in full decay. Francis Bacon wrote this, Men of age, object too much. Consult too long. Adventure too little. Repent too soon. And seldom drive business home to the full period. But content themselves with a mediocrity of success. Isn't it crazy what success will have a tendency to do with us as we start to settle? We start to consult too much and don't, we don't risk anymore. We don't risk in our job. We don't do anything that we don't want to look out beyond the boundaries because we're just fine. We're kind of content. And we use content with religious terminology and say, you know, the Bible requires that you're supposed to be content. No, God says go out there and be a champion and go for adventure. Do we want more? I don't want more. No, I want more for your family. Want more of the right stuff. We've got enough hope. 
We've got enough storage rooms full of junk that we're not using anymore. We've got enough stuff. Aren't you filled with the gills with enough stuff in your own life now? We can't find enough stuff. When we go camping, all the fellas were laughing. We're filling a whole trailer full of stuff. We're only staying for one night. <laughs> we got stuff coming out of our ears for every contingency, for every emergency. We don't live for adventure. Here's how the world defines success. In fact, look in your dictionary, success. Here's how it says it. We need to redefine success. Turn somewhere and say, redefine success. Here's how we define success. It's driven upon us. We define success as how much money you make, don't we? Come on now. We define success as the type of home you live in. Come on now. We define success on your influence and your affluence and whatever you do and all your little ways that you kind of build that selfish pride up and give yourselves a pat on the back. But that's not spiritual success. And here's what the world defines as success. The achievement of something planned or attempted. Impressive achievement, especially the attainment of fame, wealth, or power. Somebody who has a record of achievement, especially in gaining wealth, fame, or power. So we define success by essentially money. Jerry Forrest wrote this in his book, Success Builders. He said, Notice that nowhere in the dictionary definitions do you find any reference to finding meaning, fulfillment, and happiness, and lasting relationships. No mention of feeling fully alive while engaged and connected with a calling that matters to you. No thoughts about creating a legacy of service to the world. We're teaching our children exactly what we're doing. Go after money, and you get a good job, and you're going to have a successful life. Well, you start going down that road long enough, and you realize how not fulfilling that job is. You start going down the road and you start going, how not satisfying the money is. And men, if I'm like you and you're like me, I'm human, I say, man, just how much is enough money? Just a little bit more. And we've lost adventure because we're not doing anything that gives us a sense of purpose. We're not doing anything that gives us any sense of eternity, any drive any fulfilling, you say, man, what I'm doing, it doesn't matter what I make, it doesn't matter how I end up, I'm doing this because I love it and God's called me to it. Amen. It's like what Rob was talking about. He said, man, I'm not good at this, I do this. Whatever you find, and that starts bubbling up and that gives you joy, and you know, you say, well, how do I find my purpose? Do you love what you're doing? Then keep doing it. If you love mingling with people, mingle with people all day long, then be the mingler. You love crunching numbers or doing those kind of things. I told you, me and my dad are opposite ends of the spectrum personality. Man, my dad's the guy that's line up online and he gets all the directions. And I'm like, Dad, we only need the directions if we have four extra volts. I told you that already. <laughs> Creating a legacy of service to the world. You can define success in a believer's life, by the way. I've said this before. My next book is going to be this. You can define success in the believer's life by one word. Obedience. Are you obeying God in what you're doing? You know, Abraham, when God called him, would God still love him if he stayed in the land of Ur? Would God still love him? Sure would. Would God still let you speak to him? Absolutely. Would he go to heaven? Yep. But guess what he wouldn't have? He wouldn't have the fulfillment of the promised land 
He wouldn't have the fulfillment of all the dreams and the desires that God said. As many as the stars are in the, in the plants in the skies, that's how many children you're going to have. Abraham had to step out and redefine what success would be. We miss out on God's success when we are unwilling to take the step of faith in the moments that we are blessed with Him. I believe what we need to do as Americans is we need to start downsizing, not upsizing. And I know this just from a practical place of living and looking at people's houses and businesses. I'm like, these people live in these homes and they've got 14 empty bedrooms and extra living rooms and this and that. I, I had one house I did and they had the TV people come through and they were installing 14 televisions in the house. It took them two vans. And I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, what are we doing? And so we live and we serve that thing and we have to build around it. We have to think about it. We're consumed with it. My wife was talking about this little show that's on now where they have these little houses on HGTV. Have you seen that? Tiny, tiny little homes. And these people are loving it because they're able to go out there and dream. Man, my goal for my future is not to be bogged down with a huge mortgage payment. Man, I want to be free so we can give, so we can serve, so we can be a part of God's plan for our life. We were looking at furniture the other day and I really had to pray about it because see, Steve's bad at this stuff, folks. Honestly, I am. I'm going through looking at furniture and it will get given to us. And, you know, I'm the type of person, go big or go home, right? Come on now. <laughs> no little stuff. Go, you know, get it big. Go for it. So I'm looking at it and, and, and it's quite watch these final look at this. I'm like, hey, look at this. We, you know, we had just enough to kind of get a little bit, but it would be so much better. Because when you buy one piece of furniture, you got to have everything matched. Come on. Can't have not matching furniture. The world will come to an end. <laughs> come on, let's think out loud for a minute. So for a moment there, I was willing to go and get a couple thousand more dollars so that I could have the matching set. Now Anne's quiet. She's letting me do my plan for all of this. And it was so neat on the couch. Because how many know, you know, wives, if you let the Lord, He will speak to your husbands. Can you get, get, get an elbow there? He will. He will. It might take time. It might take months. It might take years. But God's speaking to them. And we're sitting there like, man, I just don't think this is a good idea to just go in debt for some stupid furniture. And kind of with a tear trickling down her face, she said, Steve, that's exactly what I was feeling for. Just in that moment as we came together on that. This is a really cool thing. And I don't know where your demons lie, where your weaknesses and all those things, but I am telling you, as God leads you, as He takes you places, you're going to have to start saying no to some things that before you would have ran after. The Steve of probably 10 years ago would have even blinked an eye and looked up. We miss out on God's success of the adventure because we're looking for the adventure to be what I can buy. It's tangible. It's something that I can get. I like this. But how many of you know the new car smell goes away really fast? It stays there a little bit. We miss out on God's success when we are willing to take the step of faith out of the moments that we are blessed with. The story of Jonathan, let's look there real quick. 1 Samuel chapter 14. 
mean, by the way, if you don't have a new car smell, you can go to the local uh, Mr. Car Wash and get it. It's cheap. It's cheaper. I, I learned a little thing too, and this is a rabbit. Can I go on a rabbit trail real quick? I was I learned in Bible school was funny. One of the teachers he was talking about kind of taking care of the things you got. You know what? We always complain, Lord, I don't have new this and new that. You know what? Treat your car that you got right now like it's a new car. Right. Amen. You know what? Too much is given, much is required. You know, you might start out with small things, vacuum that car out, shine it up, and be proud of the thing that God gave you. When I heard that at Bible school in 1996, it blew me away. We complained, I hate this, and I don't like this. Vacuum the rusty old bucket, be proud of it. <laughs> Filled with bags of trash and junk, and you grumble and you complain. You can't even get someone in the car. Vacuum the dumb thing out. Shine up, put some carnauba wax, do whatever you need to do. Spend $20 on a car wash and love it all the way down the road. I want more. It's horrible. My air conditioner doesn't work. Turn fan on, open the window. We're suffering for Jesus. <laughs> oh, the picture. First Samuel 14. One of the craziest stories I've ever seen. First Samuel 14, 1 through 14, Jonathan attacked the Philistines. Not Jonathan and our army, but Jonathan attacked the Philistines. This is a real story. This is a fairy tale now. Now when the cats from the Philistines had gone out the pass of McMash. I love that word, McMash. Mashed potatoes. <laughs> one, uh, one day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. I mean, that's a good thing. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah, under the pomegranate tree at Migron. With him were about 600 men. Among him were Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother, uh, Ethu, son of the Phileas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistines' outpost was a cliff. One was called Boses and the other Sinna. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmas and the other to the south towards Gibbon. Are you starting to get kind of a picture of what's going on now? Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps, everyone say perhaps. perhaps. The Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in your mind, as Armorbury said. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come on. Then we will cross over towards them and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Can, I, can you say crazy? <laughs> So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they are hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. Uh-oh. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind them. And that attack, and that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about a half an acre. They climb up the 
side of a cliff. First of all, how can you even get over the cliff to fight? And talk about the supernatural power of God to work on your behalf. By the way, Jonathan didn't go have a quiet time for two hours to figure out if he's supposed to go climb up the cliff. Did you catch that too? He didn't say, wait, Armor Bearer, I'm going to fast for three days. I'm going to consult two of the wisest men in Israel, and then we're going to have a consultation, and we're going to figure out if we can take the Philistines out. He said, maybe. We'll have victory. And here's the terms. He set the terms, not God. Now God spoke into his spirit of what to do, but there was no prophet saying, Thus, Jonathan, you will say this and declare this, because that's how we think. Because we don't move off our hind pots until someone else forces us to do it. He consults with his armor bearer and he says, If they tell us to wait, they're going to come to us. That will be our sign. But if they say, come after us, we'll chase these rodents and we'll get them. Because they're uncircumcised Philistines. We're the champions here, not those 20 men. So we're taking this. We're in control. And folks, as the Spirit fills your life with adventure, you will determine that, hey, I'm going after this, and every step that I'm walking is blessed because I'm in the will and I'm in the hands of Almighty God. You don't have to pray for a blessing. You don't have to do this and that. You are blessed in this city, folks. You're blessed. And you're blessed to do the adventure. And God was blessed by that. That step of faith, the crazy step of faith that Jonathan did with his armor bearer created victory. And if you read shortly after that in that story, panic ensued in the Philistine army. Folks, I am telling you what will happen in your life right now. As you make a decision to say, I'm going to move out in faith and I'm going to do this. I might not have all the details worked out. I have no clue how I'm going to kill 20 people. How many know he didn't have a crazy battle plan in his head? He just did it. He didn't have airstrike support up there going, Jonathan, get up there and kill the guy on the 11 o'clock. He's on your 11 o'clock. Didn't that sound like really army, Jim? That was good army. <laughs> good army there. He said this, when it comes to your adventures, I declare this promise over you. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or a few. David's mighty men. 2 Samuel chapter 23, 1-24. Maybe you've never heard of David's mighty men. David's mighty men, they were crazy mighty men. And there are some men in here in this place where in a, in a spiritual sense, these are the kind of men in this place where I want to take you to a dark alley. How I many you know when you're in a dark alley, it's nice to have a big fighter with you? And life is full of dark alleys. Second Samuel 23. David's mighty men. We'll read a little bit of those guys that understood the adventure. Verse 8. 23 verse 8. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Joash Basavah, a Tachemite, who was a chief of three. He raised a spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. You know, we think of David and Goliath. This is crazy. 800 men in one encounter and he wiped out. 
Eleazar, son of Dodai, the ally, as one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David, as when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastam and for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, but Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. Troops returned to Eleazar, but only one to strip to death. Next day was Shammah. When the Philistines banded together at the place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them, but Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. You continue reading the story of these mighty warriors, these David's mighty men. These would have been in the hall of fame, of faith, of these men who made the choice to stand when everyone else was running. Men, I am declaring you today as we come upon Father's Day. This isn't about having a cute fishing pole and just hanging out. This is you fighting for the very lives of your family. And it is time we fight. And preparing for battle, the Bible gives us clear definitions in Ephesians 6, 13, where it talks about we put on the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and the breastplate of righteousness, and the gospel of peace, and the sandals. We put all of those things on because we are going into battle. Fighting the good fight of faith. Number three, learning to win. I do have to make, unfortunately, a reference to the Green Bay Packers this morning. And Vince Lombardi. But that's okay, because he's, he's the man. But learning to win is a hard thing when you've been defeated so long. And the Packers had hit rock bottom in 1958. For the 1959 season, they tried the usual trick, bringing a new coach and general manager, Vince Lombardi. The players mostly didn't know about the man, except that he had been an assistant coach for the New York Giants. As the players convened to meet the new coach, they expected the typical speech. This is the year to turn things around. I'm going to get tough with you, no more business as usual. Lombardi did not disappoint them. In a quite forceful tone, he explained the new set of rules and code of conduct. But a few players noticed something different about Lombardi. He oozed confidence. No shouts or no demands. His tone and manner suggested that the Packers were already a winning team. They just had to live up to it. Was he an idiot, or was he some kind of visionary? What did he recognize about the Packers team that went 0-10 in the previous two years, and then in 1958 went 10-1? Robert Green writes, he recognized the problem right away. The team was infected with adolescent defeatism. Teenagers will often strike the pose that is simultaneously rebellious and lackadaisical. It's a way of staying in place. Trying harder brings more risk of failure, which they cannot handle, so they lower their expectations, finding nobility and slacking off the mediocrity. Losing hurts less than when they embrace. Groups can get infected with the spirit without realizing it. All they need is a few setbacks, and slowly expectations lower and defeatism sets in. I want to ask you today, has your expectations lowered as far as winning and what you win? And maybe, men, you've decided that you're just going to win here. You know, you get into that place, or you're playing not to lose. Have you ever heard that claim before in, in team sports, where you're playing not to lose as opposed to playing to win and going after it? And maybe, men, you're kind of staying in your lane, and you don't want to ruffle this, and you don't want to do that, and your prayers are not passionate. 
Your pursuit is not going after that. And so you've set your standard with a lackadaisical mediocrity and you said, I'm lowering my standards to this. I'm lowering the level of victory down to here. We did make the playoff. That's okay. We had a good year. Folks, we are in this life. We are running the race to win the race. Attitude, folks, I've heard this said, will always determine your attitude. And if your attitude in your home life is one of, I'm a victim, and you're lackadaisical, and you really aren't on point with those things, your family will be infected, and your setback will turn into a cancer in your home. And there will not be any steps of victory and there won't be any steps of going after. You think about those mighty men. Man, Eleazar fought so many men off that his hand actually cleaved to the sword. He fought till he couldn't fight anymore. You say, what am I supposed to do? I have one guy. We were talking again in the counseling and he says, I've already tried it all. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many people have said that in your family before? I try everything. You know, the Bible declares, men, and I hate to say this, but the most convicting verse for me is that I am supposed to die for my wife. And I'm supposed to love her as much as Christ loved the church. That is a huge thing to live up to. So I can't take myself out of the equation of the problems I face in my family. I have to say, Father, am I sacrificing myself? Is my hand on the sword? Folks, if your hand is not on the sword, you need to put your hand on the sword. You know, if you go to battle, you've got to actually have a weapon. And your attitude when you go into battle can't be this. Can you imagine if our young men and women who are fighting abroad right now are just going around going, oh, I don't know where the stupid enemies are at. I don't know. I, what am I even here for, y'all? Come on. Can you imagine? And we get like that in our homes. And we get like that with life because we've become lackadaisical and we've been infected with a losing mentality and we feel self-defeated. And folks, I'm telling you, there is victory in Jesus because he has already won the battle. That's the neat thing about Christ. Amen. Let's turn to some self-defeated men in the Bible. Are there any in the Bible? Because we look at men now and they're all kind of in stained glass. Moses, beautiful Moses. Isn't he a mighty man, isn't he, huh? Well, he kills a guy who runs in the wilderness for 40 years and he thinks life is over. He has a speech impediment. God calls him. He says, take off your shoes. Moses needed a burning bush to wake him up. Moses, I called you to free these people. No. He continues to build Moses up. God speaks and he says, Moses, I've got a plan for you. Moses, I, I, I have a speech impediment. God takes care of that excuse. How many of you know God covers all of our excuses? Isn't it neat? Because he didn't say, Hell, by golly, I missed that point, Moses. We can't take these Israelites out of Egypt. We can't do it. How did, what's going on? Fix your speech problem. He says, fine, I'll sit here. God, what else you got, Moses? 
See, we can say all the things we want about why we can't have victory. But God goes in there and says, you can win. Gideon. Anybody know Gideon? God calls Gideon and he says, Gideon, hi, mighty man of valor. Can you imagine having God speak to you and him say directly to you, which he does, but him just say, you're in the lowest point of your life and where you're at in battle. Gideon's complaining. Where are all these miracles of yesteryear? Why can't we see all these miracles that we talk about and we share with our kids? Where are all those miracles? He's complaining and grumbling. How many have complained and grumbled before? God says to him, Hey, Gideon, you mighty man of valor, go in his mighty No, you can't send me, God. I'm our tribe is the least. I'm the least of my tribe. That's pretty low, isn't it? <laughs> you're not even in the middle. You're so you're at the bottom of the barrel. God works through Gideon. How about Peter? Peter rejects Jesus. Peter says, "Fine, I've had enough of this stuff. I'm going fishing. Going back to what I know. Anybody want to join me? I got to go fishing." Christ restores him. He says, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? He goes after him and changes that mindset. How does God see you in the middle of battle? She's being called by God right now. <laughs> How does God see you in the middle of your battle right now with all your defeats? And that's what you're going to have to figure out, man. Father, husband, you're going to have to figure out how God sees you right now in the middle of battle. Where do you need to hear this in your heart where you're defeated? Where, where was it in the last fight that you had, whatever it was, and whatever your battle was, where was it that you threw in the towel, you put the sword down, and you said, I have had enough. Where have you checked out? And you're going to have to go back to that point and with repentance say, Father, forgive me right now because I gave up and my attitude right there displays it. I have given up hope in this area of my life. We all have those points. We all have those seasons that we go through. And if we aren't careful, we will build a wall around it. And in fact, as opposed to going out, we will stay in. And that's what men do. Men, they, they go away. Don't bother me. They close the door. They, whatever they do. But men do that. But men, it's time to fight. And it's a good fight. It's worth it. Because remember, the whole sculpting thing, it might take months, it might take years, it might take until this side of eternity you don't see the end result. But I'm telling you, you will see an awesome thing happen in your life. Let's close our eyes for a moment. their eyes closed. I want to say this one more time. Tomorrow's illiterate will not be the man who can't read. He will be the man who has not learned how to learn. Folks, I want to be a man who is constantly learning what it is the Spirit's doing. I want to learn the mind of Christ in areas that I have shortcomings and my own insecurities. Where I need healing. And this isn't 
isn't to beat down any guy in here today. If anything I pray it does is it awakens us to the understanding that God wants us to join him in a beautiful journey. Not a perfect journey, but if you can just imagine for a moment God chiseling things away very slowly and methodically, not in a hurry. He's not in a hurry with you. And some of the issues that you're dealing with right now that you wanted fixed years ago, they might not even get fixed for a few more years. I don't know. But what's happening is God is working in and working through things because he sees something that no one else sees in you. Maybe your own spouse doesn't even see it yet. And God, as you open the eyes of the spouses to have vision even to see, to pray differently, not fix this or do that, but Lord, thank you for blessing me with that person. I pray that you speak very clearly to them on what you're calling them to be and to do. But I challenge you in these next couple weeks to learn again. To learn again. Today this message is for everyone, not just the fellows. But today, maybe you need to learn to be led. And you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And Jesus today is saying, come and follow me. Today is the day of salvation. Come and I will make you fishers of men. That's God's call today and it will always be the same. Today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you say, you know what? I want to follow after Jesus. I've been following after my version of success, my work. I've been pouring myself into this, but, man, I don't have my eternity worked out. No man is guaranteed tomorrow. Today, if you don't know Christ, and Christ is declaring to you, follow me, you want to know him as your Lord and Savior today? Would you please raise your hand? I want to pray with you today if you don't know him. Thank you. Anyone else? Why don't we all pray this together very loud and clear? That one person that's asked and said, you know what, I'm going to follow after Christ with my heart and my life. Dear Jesus, I thank you for what you did on the cross for me. For my sins, for my setbacks, I give you my life. I give you my heart. Forgive me, God. I thank you for the new life. And that you're a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I give you me. I thank you, God, that I'm going to spend. Eternity with you in heaven. That my name is sealed in heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen. With every head bowed and every eye closed, maybe today, young one, older one, middle-aged one, you say today, right now, man, I need to learn again. I don't know if it's learning to be led again. I don't know if it's learning to do an adventure again. I don't know if it's learning to have that winning attitude again in your spiritual walk. But you say, you know what? God's checking me down on some things. And I need to learn again. And God is calling me back to a certain thing right now. With no shame, but complete 
humility, we say, God, help me with this area. And thank you, God, that I am learning again. And I'm open to whatever it is that you're calling me to. Why don't you raise your hand? I want to pray for you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Father, I thank you for all these people that say, I want to learn. And not just words on paper. Not just a specific doctrine or God, we want to know you. We want the mind of Christ. We don't just want to memorize things just for the sake of having information. But God, we want it to come alive in our hearts. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're awakening us and causing us to lead in our homes, in our marriages, at school, friendships. I pray your blessing over these people, God, that have Raise their hand that they're learning to learn again. We're all doing that. Why don't we all pray this together? Dear Jesus, I thank you for speaking to me. I open my heart to receive what you're doing. I'm choosing to learn what you are trying to teach me. Thank you, God, that you see things that you see things that I don't miss. That you have a vision for my life. That you have a vision for my life. I say, I say choose to put on the mind of Christ. Choose to put on the mind of Christ. To be led. To be led. And to learn. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Folks, I believe God is up to something. He's doing stuff as he's going to stir and awaken things that we didn't think would ever get woke up again. Isn't that a really neat thing that God does that? But be a learner this week. Open God's Word. Let it, let it bless you. Let it convict you. Let it soften areas of your life where we've gotten stubborn. But I love you, love you so much. And uh, if you need anything, prayer for any specific area, if you ask Christ in your life today, I want to pray with you and make sure that if you have any questions or concerns that you, you know, we talk those things through and pray about those things. But I love you. Have an awesome, awesome week. And thanks again for all you guys did this weekend at, at the campsite and everything. God bless you all real good. Have a good week.